The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Everybody, it's nice to be back. Um, I've been away for a while. Some of you who are new may not know. And anyway, it's good to be with everyone. And uh, in uh, I think in the middle of May, I was here for Wednesday night before leaving again to teach on the West Coast, and I gave a talk on the Dharma of money. You know, it's just interesting, uh, Buddhism here in the West, especially the insight meditation or Vipassana, sometimes we call it early Buddhist tradition here in the West, Common Ground's part of that lineage, were a bit, unfortunately, a cult of retreating. And if you hang out in the space long enough, you'll see the reverberations of people talking, well, how many retreats have you done? And what was the longest retreat? And it's not something I'm proud of, but it's just a little bit part of the culture here. And, uh, you know, we sort of, this a little one-upmanship, like the more retreats you do or the longer retreats you do or the more extreme kind of retreat you do, somehow you're better. You get sort of a little higher up. And uh, so one of the reasons to talk about some of these more nitty-gritty topics like money and sex and relationships and power and, you know, difference, how we relate to difference around race, gender, power, things like this, is it has so much to do with the whole point of the practice, which is to be free to be alive, awake, intimate, and free with the conditions that we find ourselves. And we often don't find ourselves on that perfect retreat, or even in that perfect sit, maybe we get to have in the morning where the cell phone is off and the dog's leaving us alone, and we've got that perfect back porch to sit on on a perfect early June day, you know, and everything's just right. And so that's often, you know, in a superficial way, we often equate spiritual life, spiritual practice with perfect conditions where no one's bothering me. So then my heart's very peaceful because the kids are good. They're behaving themselves or the dog is good. It's behaving or my mind is good. It's behaving itself, right? And I'm not just chasing after food or entertainment or other things that, you know, are bad. So it's really useful for us to wonder. Like It's it's not that we want to give up on retreats or sitting formal meditation practice because it really sensitizes us to when we are in the nitty-gritty, the messiness of life, hanging out with our friends, dealing with issues of life, the difficulties that come with life. The sensitivity we get from having a sit in the morning or having gone on a retreat, it illuminates life. We're just more raw, more sensitive, more awake. We feel more deeply. And so we see, unfortunately, it's good. So I guess it isn't unfortunate. But we see how much we're pushed around by the ups and downs of life. The Buddha talks about it as the eight vicissitudes or the eight worldly winds of life. 
gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. And, you know, it's different for each of us depending on how we're located in culture. But all of us, in our own particular ways, we're buffeted by those eight worldly winds. People like us, people don't like us. People think we're great, people have some feedback for us, right? The body feels good, the body doesn't feel good. So it's, uh, that's just how it is. And, and then if our practice doesn't really inform us, doesn't illuminate this area, these areas of life, doesn't allow us to be more skillful, what's, what's the point of practice? If it's just about escaping or having a nice experience in the morning during our sit or a nice quiet weekend on retreat. By the way, retreats are not nice. <laughs> they look nice, kind of looks like a spa when you read about a Buddhist meditation retreat, but then you realize you're there with your mind <laughs> and very little to distract yourself from your mind. Some of you maybe have read um, one of Jack Kerouac's journals. I forget which which one it was, but um, he talked about this idea of going, he was going to be a, a fire uh, uh, up in one of those towers in the Cascades in Washington State looking for forest fires. I forget what they call those people. But anyway, you got your binoculars, you got your watchtower, and he thought, ah, oh, heaven, right? All alone, just me and nature, me and God, up on that beautiful tower, you know, and he realized he was there with his old hateful self, right? And no defense, no distraction. That was really intense. So this is a little bit what retreats are like. But they, you know, it, it's part of this idea that, you know, the wrong idea that we can escape life. So today I want to talk about this general area we call in Buddhism sila, which is a Pali word that gets translated as morality or integrity or this deep abiding, you could even say a passionate desire not to cause harm, really committed to not causing harm. Not that we'll ever get there as human beings, right? Can you imagine being a human being and actually not causing any harm? I can't. But the aspiration is what's beautiful and liberating and healing to aspire to not cause harm, to live, to be engaged in order, right, to be sensitive, in order to take this up, to not harm, to not cause harm. It's like the, you know, we all need <laughs> purpose. Some of us get married and have kids, and some of us get a cat, and some of us build model airplanes or, you know, are interested in kitchen gadgets and fixing, you know, interesting meals. But if you really want a project in life, is take up the project of sila, undertaking the training to refrain from harming living beings. Because it really, it's like, just like any passion you might have, you're happy to read about it, you're happy to 
sort of pay attention. You know, those of you who are gardeners, you notice the weeds. You notice the growth in the plants. You notice when the soil is dry or too much water. Well, if this is our passion, if this is our hobby, you know, undertaking the training to refrain from causing harm, then we start to notice things. Like all the rootlets of our, like when we go shopping and what are the implications of what we buy and what we don't buy? And what are the implications of our words, what we say and what we don't say? And what are the implications of our sexual activities, how we cause harm, you know, and how we treat our body even? You know, how do we take care of every cell in the body? And how do we do this commitment to not harming without getting neurotic about it? Or thinking that I'm better than you at it, right? Oh, you do that? Oh, I haven't done that in years. (laughs) I don't have it on today. I I have my non-vegan belt on, but I was looking for a new belt not that long ago, and it was advertised as a vegan belt. (laughs) So I wish I had worn it today, because then I could say, you know, like, I have a vegan belt on. (laughs) How about you? I'm sure. (laughs) And it's endless, you know, how we... But then if we're really, really uh, a devoted practitioner of undertaking the training to refrain from harming, then we notice that that kind of is a bit of a power trip. It's causing harm, right? It's a way of beating, you know, beating down the masses who don't have vegan belts and putting myself above, right? It's part of that same game of gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, right? It's adding more suffering. So it's like, it's not about getting to the end, because a lot of us, when we think of morality, we think, I just need to, I just need to kind of get above the bar where I'm not doing a certain number of behaviors, and then I'm golden, and I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't kill, I don't do this, and I don't do that, so I'm morally sound. And morality is really for those of you who aren't there yet. But that's not how it is for us, right? Because for people who, instead of having some external sense of morality, the way the Buddha taught morality, it's a law. I mean, it isn't arbitrary, but we only know what is harmful, what's causing harm, by being really sensitive and sensing the impact here in our heart. So if you want to know if your words caused harm, you know, it's like you have to be sensitive. You have to engage the world, your actions, your words, even your thoughts, right? So you're engaged, you're living a life, and you're really sensitive. And that sensitivity isn't something you turn on and off. It's continuous, right? That's the ideal. So then in your interactions, you say something, you do something, you even think something, And you've got, in a sense, the sounding board, which is your sensitive heart. What's the aftertaste of having said that, having thought that, having done that? So in this way, we say that, like, whether we're conscious of it or not, 
our actions, our thoughts, our words, they leave a trace here. So we don't need Santa Claus in the sky wondering whether you're being skillful or not or some other external thing out there that's judging or keeping track of our skillful and unskillful actions because we have the capacity to have a sensitive heart. And we know this. We don't often listen to this. This is not conceptual. This is not the thinking mind telling us whether we're skillful or not. It's actually noticing what's left over. If we're really wise, then before we go to bed at night, you know, maybe in bed or maybe before we're even in bed, but we set aside some quiet time where we're happy to feel whatever is still reverberating from the day or even further back from the week, from the month, from our life. What's still reverberating here? Oh, oh. And instead of like not wanting to feel what's left over from the day, we actually want to feel it because we want to read, in a sense, or sense into the law. When I do this, when I think in this way or speak in this way or act in this way, then there's a trace, a reverberation that's left over, and it feels like this. Now, sometimes those traces feel really good, like, you know, in Buddhism we call it the bliss of blamelessness or the freedom from remorse. Like, I had some really difficult interactions, and as I, as best I can, sense into it, I don't feel anything reverberating, anything left over. Oh, that feels really good to have negotiated those tricky interpersonal situations that I didn't, apparently, didn't cause harm. Now, that doesn't mean the person you were talking with isn't hurt by your interaction. Because sometimes, like I said earlier on, we can't help but cause harm. Like those of you who are parents know this. Sometimes you say things to your kids and they don't like it and they're hurting. But if you check your heart with a lot of integrity, you see, no, no, it couldn't have been other. I mean, given the circumstances, given everything in play, I don't think I could have handled that any better than I handled it. I feel clean here. This is the bliss of blamelessness. And Junior, they'll get over it. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> right? They'll understand someday. Right? Because, and this is true with our friends, it's true with the world, it's true when we have to speak truth to those with power. Right? They don't, powerful people, you know, patriarchy, we don't like to hear things pointed out to us, right? I did that. You know, we don't like to see what we're not seeing. So it might hurt, but that doesn't mean in your heart it won't be clean. It won't feel right. And that's, this is a, you know, we may, we may prefer to have some external source for what's right and wrong. I don't think you're going to find it. Go ahead and look. But I think what you can find, it's not perfect, but it's what we have. This deepening sensitivity. You could call it a moral sensitivity. 
And the Buddha speaks about this a lot. Again, it's it's not necessarily talked as much, talked about as much as, you know, some of the more meditative things of sitting there with a really calm and peaceful mind. But the Buddha calls this sensitivity the guardian of the world. Because without this moral sensitivity, right, this capacity we have to feel whether we violated this basic uh, human uh, concern of not causing harm. It's like a, it's a potentiality in our heart because there are times as humans we've really buried that tendency pretty deep, like when we're really um, overwhelmed, oppressed, in a war zone, starving with children that are starving, then we're not really able to rise to this place because we just want to survive or we're in so much pain, we just want relief regardless of what it sets in motion, like makes things worse for us. And I mentioned, if you didn't hear the talk, I recorded that talk in May on money, so it's on dharmaseed.org where all of our talks, Common Ground's talks are. You can get to it from our website where all the audio talks are recorded and put up. But I talked about these different realms of existence that are there in Buddhist cosmology, the hell realms and the animal realms and the hungry ghost realms and the warring god realms and the angelic realms and the human realm. And the human realm is, and we as human beings, that's just a story about where we find ourselves at different times in our lives, right? Sometimes as a human being, we're in a hell realm. And we're just hurting so much that we'd be willing to do anything to get some relief, even if it's self-destructive or causes other people harm. We just need relief. That's what hell realm is like, right? An animal realm is when our mind is just bound by instinct. We see somebody attractive and we can't help ourselves but try to get that person, try to connect with that person. Or we see something that scares us and we want to kill it, right? There's a spider in the house. You know, my house, you don't belong here. That's being in the animal realm. The, hunger, the warring God realm is interesting. It's like when we uh, have a lot, but other people we see have more. So we can't enjoy our own, because even though we have a lot, relatively speaking, you know, we're in a really good place, got a big house, got a big car, physically beautiful, have some success but we're totally fixated on somebody who has more than we have. So we're trying to get there. So we find ourselves in these different places, and that's what allows us to make, you know, to violate our own internal sensitivity about what is right and wrong, what is skillful and unskillful. And again, it's not a it's not out there, it's right here. What leads leaves seeds of stress what leads seeds of weight psychic weight in my heart what leads leaves seeds of release and freedom in my heart and this we can check but you see it, it totally depends on being a reflective sensitive mindful human being 
Like you can't be a moral human being without this sensitivity. You can think you're a moral human being because you're following some objective or some external set of moral guidelines. But you know how that goes. It's like there are a lot of, you know, in terms of um, colonization, you know, the, the Vatican, the popes, felt very fine about sending, you know, missionaries and, you know, people out to the Americas back in the day and conquering the indigenous people, you know, and it was really justified by a moral, external moral code, right? And so this is the thing about when we're not using the sensitivity of our own heart, it's very easy institutionally to manipulate morality to get what we want, basically. To act out our animal instincts of survival, which is just the power. You know, it's just like, I've got more power, I want more. Because there's no end to desire. You know, we may have four tons of gold, but that's not as much as eight tons. We may have our flag on this much of the earth, but it's not the entire earth. We may control absolutely anything, everything, but it may not last. So we have to be on the lookout for those who may eventually take my power away. Right? So there's never really an end we're in that, when we're in that hell, animal, hungry ghost, like in terms of Buddhist cosmology, in those frightened realms. And so when we become a full, a mature human being in a Buddhist sense, that means we've had an insight, which is this sensitivity is a guardian. I'm, t- I'm, I'm basically screwed if I don't cultivate the sensitivity of my heart because I'm just going to get pushed around by instinct. I'm going to choose, I'm going to act, I'm going to speak based on s- survival not on what actually leads to happiness. And there's this basic freedom from being a frightened animal, basically, you know, an instinctual animal, which is, you know, this is why in human culture we respect altruism and generosity and being a mensch and being somebody who cares about the wider community that sort of sees that we're in this together, right? This is, we have poetry and songs and literature and stories that are about the kind of glorify human beings that can express who, who because of the sensitivity and really uh, emphasizing in their life the sensitivity, they become beautiful. And in, in the Buddhist tradition, it's talked about as a scent. I really like this, like the scent of morality. Like an unforgettable scent when you're around somebody who has a lot of integrity, this well-cultivated commitment, this beautiful devotion to non-harming, and really have cultivated the sensitivity and really you know how it is. People who I met was sort of joking about earlier in the talk. People been obsessed about their kitchens and about cooking. I mean, it's amazing what they can do. They got their little station where they're growing their own herbs and 
you know, where they shop to get this spice and that spice. Oh, you just don't, you know, you tell them you buy spice at club or cub foods or something like that, and they go, oh, that's not spice. You know, you got you got to get it here. You got to, what was it? Oh, I know. I was at Cloud Mountain teaching uh, earlier in May. It's a wonderful retreat center. And there's a wonderful staff person there. And uh, he's a great guy. And But uh, he was, uh, he's not even the main cook. He's just one of the, he subs for the main cook. And he's sort of the operations person. And, uh, but he was saying that he, he has this connection. He used to work in restaurants and, and kitchens. So he's got quite a background in food. And he's got this friend who's got this Italian oregano. And because we were talking about, he had cooked the soup that day and it was really great. And he said, oh yeah, I've got this Italian oregano. And it's not like any other oregano. <laughs> and I believe it, you know, that there's sort of differences to these things. But there's no end. No, imagine if we had that kind of sensitivity, interest, passion about morality, about how we're navigating all our relationships, our possessions, all of our activities in the world, like leaving no trace. One of my teachers way back in the 80s talked about it, you know, navigating the world as if he was walking on the bosom of his mother, you know, like to be that careful. And there's a, a, another Buddhist saint, um, Padmasa Sambhava, who was one of the people who brought Buddhism up into Tibet way back, many hundreds of years ago. And uh, and he said, although my view, right, he, so in terms of his meditative insight, although my view is as vast as the sky, as empty and vast as the sky, my attention to karma, cause and effect, is as fine as a grain of barley flour. Right? But we would think, oh, that's oppressive to have to pay but see, it's not oppressive if it's if it's our passion. Like if we really see how we navigate situations as like, oh, this would be interesting. Like, how can I do this where my heart feels good at the end? Oh, I got to have this conversation with this person. I don't know if some of you might have noticed there was an older man um, asking for money, uh, he had a little note about being from Ethiopia and, and not having services from the county. And he was doing it right at the entranceway. So I asked him to stand out on the public, not not be on the common grounds um, property if he wanted to continue. But it was exactly this sort of situation. I mean, there's so many sticky situations that we're confronted with in life. And like, can we do, can we show up to the interactions that we have and really be sensitive? Like, who knows what the right thing to do is? We don't know. We might pretend that we don't, we know, but we actually don't know what we should say to our kid, our partner, the person who comes asking for help. I don't know what to say, but I have a sensitive heart. And so if I don't do it, perfectly, then the sensitivity of my heart will show that up. But I have to be willing to listen, you know. Okay, what's left over here? What's the feeling here that's left over? It doesn't talk, the feeling. 
it just sort of gives us a general sense of whether we operated out of greed, hatred, and delusion, or whether we operated out, out of generosity and kindness and compassion. Because that's the level of that sensitivity. Okay, feels like it could have been better how I handled it. Okay, so let me reflect on it. So then next time, right, this is that sensitivity, like it's almost a monument to all the mistakes we've made where we didn't act as skillfully as we might have. Then it reminds us, okay, let's really be sensitive here. And if we don't get it right the first time, maybe there's a chance to do it again. Hey, can I, let me say that again. Let me restate that. This is really what I wished I had said the first time. I don't know if you caught, is it Peter Brocious, the executive or artistic director of the Children's Theater Company? Anyway, there was some, I just caught a little, is it Peter? Yeah, some of you might have heard them in the news, but there are some, I don't even know the details of the lawsuit. Um, it has to do with, I think, child abuse. Um, but but it was really great. I mean, it would have been great if they had made the mistake. But he was saying, you know, we should we made a mistake. We should have caught this earlier. We didn't. But now, you know, you don't just because we make a mistake and then later feel, oh yeah, that that wasn't the right, that wasn't the best way to handle that. I feel the reverberation of what I said earlier, because a lot of times there's still opportunity to do it again and a little better and maybe even again and do it a little better because why would we think in those especially those sticky situations why would we think we'd get it right the first time it'd be nice right but we often don't but the sensitivity of our heart says you know what that doesn't feel good whatever just happened doesn't feel good so let me Return. Let me at least sit with it, see if any intuition arises about what I might do better, how I might handle this better. This is from Ajahn Amaro, a Western Buddhist monk in the Thai forest tradition. He's the abbot now of Abai, um, Abai, um, I'm sorry, Amaravati in England, which is one of the major Western. Buddhist monasteries. He says, I would encourage you to cherish the five precepts deeply. So these are just the five mindfulness trainings around sila, undertaking the training to not harm living beings, undertaking the training not to take what hasn't been given, undertaking the training to refrain from causing harm with our sexual activity, undertaking the training to refrain from causing harm with our speech, and not intoxicating the mind in ways that increases the likelihood of causing harm. So the intoxication itself isn't necessarily unskillful, you know, to get a little tipsy, isn't necessarily unskillful, but it increases the probability, right? If things get sticky when you're tipsy, it's easier to do something stupid than if we're not, Right, because being high, being drunk, being obsessed, you know, any way that we might intoxicate the mind, we're just not as sensitive in those moments. So that's why that's included as a fifth precept, undertaking the training not to intoxicate the mind. 
so that we can value, it's sort of an expression of this value of sensitivity, moral sensitivity. So he says, um, he would encourage you to cherish the five precepts deeply, abide by them as devotional practice, as a mindfulness practice, as a concentration practice, and as a practice of conduct. All these different elements are contained within these simple principles. Taking the precepts is an act of arousing the intention to accord with and to be as kind as possible to yourself and to the world around you. And he goes on to talk about how it's not a one-shot deal. And that's what I was saying too, where we think, okay, I've cleared this bar. I don't have to really be a practitioner of morality. But this in the Buddhist tradition is seen as the most direct way to be a happy human being. Putting energy, devotional, attentional energy towards these five trainings. It's the easiest way, the fastest way, the most guaranteed way to become a happy human being. To be devoted to not harming. And if you look around at people who seem to be regularly more happy than you, and then you reflect on their morality, you might find a correlation between people who tend to be happy, not exclusively happy, but tend to have a lot of well-being. They tend to be people who have been good students of morality. Just check it out. And then look at people who have been not so good students of morality, not really respected the need to be sensitive about causing harm or not. And, you know, are they happy? It's just, you know, because we can learn from our own sensitivity, but inevitably we're going to learn from those around us. Why does this person seem to have a lot of ease and resilience in their life? What is it that they're doing? Is it just accidental or random? Or is it related to some of their underlying values in their mind and heart that I can emulate? So I'll leave it here. We have a little time before we end. Time for a few sharings. We've all been students of morality for a long time. Yeah, Ruth, you want to start us off? And then Patrice? Uh, yeah, thank you, Mark, for um, just to tease out a little bit what you said about what's going on with the Children's Theater Company. Um, from my reading of the situation, the error was because they did what their lawyers told them to do, which is they were in the legal right to sue this person mm-hmm. who, you know, lost the lawsuit. And the karmic backlash from the community was so strong um, that they came back and said, we screwed up. And I think that, you know, when you pointed out that, and you use the example of the Catholic Church, but oftentimes we think of these external moral codes as something that's religious. And if we're Buddhist or whatever you want to call this mindfulness practice, we've freed ourselves from that superstition, right? But the legal superstition is, I think, in our society, secular society, just as strong, if not stronger. And I find myself defaulting to that all the time. Like with my landlord or with my boss, I think in legalistic terms, well, I'm in the right. And I think that that just points out, no matter if we're part of any organization, whether it's a corporation or a nonprofit, the the law is really here 
the moral yeah. code is always has to be here. That's what the Buddha, I think, would say. Yeah, there's a moral code that trumps everything else, and it's the sensitivity of our own heart. And we may not like that, especially because that empowers other people to have their own moral co- cult, code. But we realize that, well, like the, the people have a right to dig their own holes, you know, in terms of whatever seems right to them. And it's good that we do have some external things, you know, but the external things ideally are built upon people who have some sensitivity, right, have paid attention to their own heart and then articulated together in community. So what do we do about that in terms of laws or in terms of legal principles? Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Patrice, and then we'll go to Zinzalei. So um, this is sort of... Uh, in concert with that, and I know that you've been gone, Mark, and it's it's about unintentional harming. And I think in some ways your point of saying this person, you know, made a mistake and made an apology, um, but it is harmful um, to hear um, sort of that taken at face value. And I know you weren't here to read the backstory, but it's really, there's been a call for an incredible boycott of the Children's Theater Company. It was, you know, going after a young woman who had charged the company 17 years ago for negligence and, you know, then giving her, they went after her for $200,000 of uh, court costs. So it's not the particulars of this. I guess what I'm um, reflecting on myself is how often I have um, made mistakes about someone else's example. So this is an example of someone um, being apologetic, but I, I feel particularly called upon to say that this is a bad example in some ways because of the gravity of the situation and also that it was not, it seems that it was not remorse on the part of that person but an incredible um, response on social media and the threat to have uh, an incredible boycott of the community. And there are still a number of responses that say that that apology is an inadequate apology, as there's often an inadequate apology about racism or something else. So I I just want to say that... in our unintentional harming, mm-hmm. that in some ways calling attention to that as an example of someone doing the right thing, it's a very questionable example, and I think it just needs to be um, brought some attention to because I know you didn't, you know, you were gone and you didn't yeah. know the circumstances. Yeah, so that's right. I don't, I don't, and I should have been careful about that. And I was just making the point that because even now. The children's theater company, not, not knowing the story, it's like that organization, those board members, they can keep at it, whatever the at it is, right? And part of the sensitivity is seeing the community respond, like being appalled by, like, just taking what you said, right? So the idea is when we're sensitive, it's never over. We can keep it. And so, like, the next step might be for, again, not knowing the situation, like, you know what? I should just resign, for example. Might be like, I really blew it, and I'm modeling 
what people should do when they really blew it. I've lost the trust of the community. Maybe I should resign or something like that. Or maybe I should resign and devote myself to this work or whatever. So it's it's sort of like this is the, it's actually a good example. I mean, it w- maybe it would have been better to have the background. But this idea that we can kind of keep working on whatever is uneasy in our heart, whatever causes us to see that it's not done, it's not clean, even if it's the fear of legal exposure. Because that sometimes we're in that dense place that unless our partner says, I'm going to leave you unless, or I'm going to sue you unless, or you, no one's going to donate or show up unless, and that wakes us up a little bit. Oh, maybe I'm not seeing everything here. But I appreciate you bringing that up, uh, Patrice, because I don't know what's been going on. Since uh, you get the last word. Oh, thanks. So, um, <clears throat> you know, over the past basically 20 years of, well, 23 years of my life, I've not had to rely on public transportation. And over the past several months, I've had to rely on public transformation, transportation. And so, yeah, public, when will we have public transformation? <laughs> 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 uh, so anyways, uh, but one of the things that it is, is allowed me to understand is that I've been able to really be careful about what I'm able to see as a driver. I mean, I'm able to go to places that are beautiful and pleasing and lovely, you know, whether it's wherever I want to go. But on public transportation, I am I always I'm always I, I often confront a lot of human misery and a lot of acting out in what we might consider immoral ways. And so I basically just want to say that, or, you know, ways that aren't conducive to happiness. But uh, I'll just relate the story. Yesterday, I was coming back from the Mall of America on a bus, and there was this young, there was this um, young girl and her father, and her father was just sitting there really just speaking to her in a very cruel way. And I know that that child will she will that's the person he was trying to father her but it was very cruel um and and very harsh and that a lot of people don't actually have um opportunities they're not loved on properly and um you know i grew up in an environment not unlike you know that girl and i just think to say that if we check out people who are not doing the moral things and say that they're they're not doing, but I think it, it's more to so to be like as a as a more of a compassionate stance would be to say that people who are acting out in what might consider ways that are in kind of moving against kind of like the precepts, it might be that they are simply not had loving kindness and compassion directed toward them, and so because people who have easy lives. It's easy to be happy when you have a full stomach and you can get you some tea and some honey and this and that and come meditate and see the beautiful lighting. But when you are in environments where you're literally closed off and segregated in the world, like literally like South High School, I mean, it's a beautiful high school. I love the high school. No, it's not beautiful. It's a great curriculum, but it's like a prison. And some people live their lives in really terrible sort of circumstances. So my practice is just trying to be like, I, I didn't realize how much I have to work on compassion and not judgment. So that's all I was going to say. Yeah. For instance, like this whole thing about the children's theater, who goes there? Why is that a concern? <laughs> uh, some folks never get a chance to get into that space because they can't afford a ticket. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Zinzale. 
Let's just take a few moments, let go of the words. Touch into the sensitive heart, see what's there. Thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to be together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.